All right, can we get into the Word now this morning and open up our Bibles to Philippians? Philippians, we have been in our series in Philippians now for a little while. And I just, it's been, been wonderful to be in this letter. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 16 this morning in chapter 3. Now, there was a, a history-making race that took place in Vancouver in 1954. Two runners were competing for the prize, the, the crown, for running the fastest mile in history. Earlier that year, England's Roger Bannister broke a world record. He was the first man to run the mile in under four minutes. And he was going to be running against Australia's John Landy, who a little bit, long, later than a, a little bit more than a month later from that record-breaking moment, he broke Bannister's record. So both of these guys were the best. Best of the best. This was the Super Bowl <laughs> of the mile. There was a ton of anticipation. The press were all, they termed this the mile of the century or the miracle mile. Before a crowd of 35,000 in the stadium, the guns went off. These men let it loose. They started running. And for the entire race, Landy led, usually by 15 yards at one point, narrowed to 10, until the very last bend, almost at the very end of the race. Bannister, who was trailing the whole time, said, I saw him glance inwards over his opposite shoulder. I think the crowd was making so much noise he couldn't hear whether I was behind him or whether I'd, he dropped me. And he looked over his left shoulder and I passed him on his right shoulder. And at that moment, Roger Bannister passed him. He crossed the finish line before Landy. He collapses in exhaustion and he, he won the race. Bannister said later that tiny act of him looking back held great significance and it gave him confidence. There's actually a picture here of that very moment. Landy thought he was pulling away. He thought he was way far away from him and he was right on his tail. Did, did it cost him? One article noted Landy once likened it to Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt as she looked back in the Bible, even though he denied that that was the thing that caused him to lose the race. There's actually a statue of this moment. Can you imagine this? Like you being immortalized <laughs> as the guy who lost. He, he, he looked back, he looked back, and he took his eyes off the finish line, and he lost the prize. In our text today, Paul is likening the Christian life to a race. One, one as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, has been saved by Christ in the gospel. We have this, this heavenly purpose, this goal, a prize, which comes with a pressing, a, a continual, nonstop running the Christian life all the way till the end. And Paul has been laboring for this point through this letter. He's, he's laboring for their joy, but as remember, he's laboring for their progress in Jesus. Side by side, in the gospel, moving forward ahead towards a, a destination in the midst of loss and, and suffering coming in, that they would find joy in community pressing towards this destination. It, it's his goal to finish well. He wants them to finish well. And, and much like this costly misstep, by Landy in looking back, it would be a costly, costly thing to look back, to, to stop pursuing Jesus, to, to stall out, to let something derail them and turn them away from this race. 
And he wants them to end and finish well. He wants them to get to their destination in Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at this text that draws us to our attention. And so we're going to actually back up a little bit just so as at the text we were in last week so we can feel the flow and it will help inform this section of, of scriptures we're looking at today. And then we'll pray. Let's begin back at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in, and if in everything, anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Would you join me as we, we pray? Well, Lord, we come to you this morning and, and we... And we, as we just sang earlier, Lord, the, knowing that you hold us fast, but also knowing that our love oftentimes grows cold. This, this tension of knowing you hold us and that we are weak, it, it draws us to this place that we realize we cannot, we cannot move ahead. We cannot run. We cannot make it without your help. And so we ask, Lord, I ask by your spirit, would you, would you help us feel and know and believe today, Lord, what, what we hear from this text, this, this pressing on that we need to do, this forgetting what lies behind is what we need so that we could prize you, Jesus. Do this. Help us to know and believe this deeply today by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we considered this command in verse 1 in chapter 3. Rejoice in the Lord. This, this is a command. Find joy in God. And we were looking at this idea that the Christian joy and assurance is rooted in trusting and knowing Jesus. And looking away from ourselves. Not our, not our resume, nothing we can do, but trust in Him. And that joy and assurance grows as we continue to look to Jesus and we continue to grow in treasuring him more and more. And as we do that, we can find joy in even in suffering. And we can continue on as we hope in him. Paul's aim as he moves to this next part is 
Even in the midst of this assurance of God's salvation, God's saving call comes with a charge for believers to have a continuous, progressive pursuit of Jesus until the end. Paul knows he hasn't arrived. He knows his sights must, and his heart must remain fixed on Jesus. And though, even though there's great assurance in God and his salvation, this assurance does not leave believers apathetic, immobile. God's saving call doesn't create what can be termed the critique of the frozen chosen, just stagnant, resting in some laurels of the past. No, it transforms his people to press forward in Jesus, to be conformed to Jesus, to grow in his life and in his love progressively in Jesus. So we're, so we're going to see that because we have been called by Jesus, we are to continually remove any hindrance and continually pursue Jesus to become like him and to be with him forever. So how does Paul do this? Well, we, we see in verse 12, Paul says this, that he has not obtained this. He says, I am not already made perfect. But he presses on to make it his own. So what is, what is this? What is the perfect? And, and what does he want to obtain or attain to that he has not yet made his own? Well, in our context, we would look back at verses 8 through 11 that we just read. Paul's treasure was Christ. And his aim was to know Christ, to know the surpassing worth of Christ, to gain Christ. And he tossed out all his resume, all his accolades, all his gains in this life, or that we would look to as gains in this world, and saw them as loss, as rubbish, as, as excrement compared to knowing Jesus. And he was assured of his righteousness in Jesus through faith, but his goal was to obtain, to know Jesus, the power of his resurrection to share in his sufferings in order that he might become like him, like Jesus in his death, so that by all means, here's that word again, that he may attain the resurrection of the dead. So this, this is what makes up this thing he's wanting to obtain, this, this pursuit to, that he would own, this resurrection from the dead, sharing in his sufferings, that he may become like Jesus and have Jesus. So he says, brothers and sisters, I haven't made it. I have this in part, but I haven't gained this. This reality is not mine, mine yet. Not yet. Not yet, but it will be. Paul knows that he is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And yet in this life, he would not attain sinless perfection. But flowing from his union with Jesus, his secure place in, justified place in Jesus he had to live a life. This is where this progressive, this sanctifying kind of view is in, is in view. Life is in view. That he would live a life worthily of the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 27. This is the already not yet of the Christian life. And so he is, he is in Christ, but he's straining toward, he's striving toward the day of his return so he could have the fullness of this thing he's expecting. But in the meantime... Chapter 2, verses 12 and 3, he's got to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. But he knows God is willing and working behind the scenes and all of that. But he's straining towards this finish line 
through an obedient life because of the grace of God and in response to the grace of God. He's calling the Philippians to this. He knows this is what they need. And he, he has done this before. He called the Corinthian church to this. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do, not, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. You see this? Run, run in such a way that you would obtain this prize, this, this goal, this imperishable reward, not some leafy crown that an Olympian would have. Don't disqualify yourself, but keep running not aimlessly, but with purpose as you look to Jesus. Keeping walking ahead in the obedient life until the end. But this one, this racing, this running for the believer who is in Christ is not one of anxiety that we're going to be lost, but one of assurance that God is keeping him, is keeping us. How does Paul, how, does, how can Paul run with something he has not yet obtained, but he knows he needs to run and to obtain it? He is assured of something. Look at verse 12. I press on to make it my own because. Because why? Because Jesus has made me his own. That's good news right there. He is pressing on to lay hold of something that he has not yet obtained, but he has confidence he can do that because Jesus has made him his own. This word to own is, has the idea of to seize, to possess, to, to, to apprehend. God has possessed, has apprehended Paul by his call, and he can run and press to claim and lay hold of what is his. He was bought with a price. He know he was purchased by Jesus' blood. Grace came to him through the mercy of God and called him into something, not by any achievement of his own, but because of the mercy of God. And it is in this upward heavenly call, we see in verse 14, this call of God to him that has seized him and made him his own. I love what Walter Hansen says. He says, the call of God stands at the beginning, not the end of the race Paul runs. Isn't that good news to, to know that, that we don't make it across the finish line and then somehow that is proof of, of our achievement to receive a call? No, the call of God comes by the mercy and grace of God. And it's because that call comes, we can then run to the end. Meaning we don't get the call because we run the race and achieve it and earn the call, but by the grace of God, his merciful call into fellowship with Jesus, into fellowship with his church, we can run and reach the end, a completion and the fulfillment of the call which God gives us in salvation. Those who are saved will keep on going with Jesus till the end by the grace of God, by the grace of God in the beginning, by the grace of God in the end. Romans 8 tells us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. This is what Paul wants. He wants to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also 
glorified. He gets us to the end. So in his right standing by faith in Jesus, the the truth that he is holding to, we saw in verse 16, this truth he wants to keep holding to that he has obtained in the gospel, conforming to Jesus, sharing in his resurrection, sharing in his death, he will keep his people. And so Paul is saying, I'm going to keep pressing on in the good news of that. He's calling to the Philippians, keep pressing on in the good of that. He's calling us cross of grace to keep pressing on in the good of that. Clothed in humility, side by side in the gospel, suffering for his sake together, looking at Jesus. And so what is, what, what is the, the thing that Paul then says will be the, the one thing he will do in order to, to keep running in, in this race, to press on, to make his own? Verse 13, but one thing I do, and then he gives us two things, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. He sees these as, as encapsulating one thing. I've got to let go of something in order to press on and look ahead. Forgetting and straining. He can't run, he can't press forward without first letting go. Distractions will not enable him to cross that finish line. Burdens will not let him cross that finish line. Paul wants to cross the finish line, and he knows it will be costly if he does not forget something. If he, if he looks back, right? If he pulls a, a, a John Landy, he's going to lose. What does he mean to forget what lies behind? Does that mean like forget everything? He can't remember anything of the past? Well, I don't think that that's correct because positively there are things we should not forget. Right? We don't forget about what Jesus has done in our testimony of his saving grace. Paul actually many times helps the churches in his letters to be reminded of this. In his letter to, to Titus, for those believers, he actually tells them to look back and not forget. In chapter 3, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, of our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteousness, the, things, the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Why, why does Paul, I mean, Paul isn't like rubbing their bad past in his own in their face to like to condemn them and make them feel bad. No, he's saying, remember where you were. You, you were once blind, but now you see. This is, this is the motivating power and the good of our looking back. We look back and we realize we were slaves to sin. We were deceived. We, we were slaves to our passions and our pleasures. And we were hating others. And yet kindness of, the kindness of God broke in and saved us. Not by anything we did, but because of his mercy and his grace. And what does that do? It should elicit joy. It, our looking back should bring gratitude and worship it reminds us of the loving kindness that we didn't earn or deserve, and it, it humbles us, and it leads us to ongoing repentance and ongoing trust. It turns, it turns us, as, as we look back to the saving work, as the psalmist would say, return me, to me the joy of my salvation. We're rehearsing the grace of God. Not to condemn, but for joy. Because God tells us there is therefore no condemnation for those 
in Christ. But there are things that can tempt us to look back. Sometimes like the things we, someone who continues to look over their shoulder could be captivated by fear. The fear of something creeping up on their back. And the gospel frees us from this fear of judgment because we are in Christ, safe and forgiven. It cleanses our consciences knowing that we no longer will be condemned for our sins. No longer is, is God, God never was, but this lurching around behind us on our back, waiting for us to screw up just to, to get us. We don't have to look back anymore. They've been forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so has our sins been forgiven us. So our affections rise as we rightly look back of God's redemption. When we rightly look back, it causes us to continue to walk in humble repentance and trust. However, Paul is saying, I must forget some things. I must not look back in a proper way. These things that creep up on us, that turn us around from losing our sight and trust on Jesus. Hindrances, weights, distractions. Forgetting in our context are already listed as some things that Paul just communicated. Remember, he just he worked through his, his religious past, all, all his upbringing, all his law-keeping, all his religious accomplishments were not enough to earn him right standing before God. Remember, he said that we have no confidence in our flesh. This is what Paul has in view here. I'm forgetting any confidence that I have in my flesh, any fleshly works, any fleshly confidence I have. All those are debts and weights, and they're only pride. They lead to self-boasting rather than boasting in Jesus. All the pride that showed that I did not treasure Jesus as my ultimate hope. Those things we forget, we look away from. Also, those sins that are weights and sins that cling so closely, as Hebrews 12, we're to lay those aside, the distractions, the encumbrances that trip us up and hinder us from keeping our eyes on Jesus. So this comes with an ongoing introspection of our hearts, not morbidly, but in a healthy way to say, like the Proverbs 23 calls us to, to keep, to guard our heart with all vigilance. What are those things? What are those things that, that, that neglect, that cause us to neglect our eyes upon Jesus? Keep our eyes on Jesus. And for those who've lived long enough as a Christian, this can be so subtle and so easily happening to our hearts as we live the Christian walk, live the Christian life. We can look back at those experiences we can lean on them. I remember when I went to Bible school. I remember that revival that I was a part of. I remember I led that class in ministry. And it just becomes this sort of dangerous, contented place when that was, we feel like we've kind of arrived. We had that experience. We, we know what that feels like. And this con dangerous, contented place that is really apathy. Leaning on those bygone experiences and the once pursuits of Jesus, and there's nothing tangible and real now. So there are, is a forgetting of those things that we need to let go of that can just lead to apathy with no urgency and no passion. May we examine those things in our heart as we pursue Jesus, that we all could be susceptible to our love growing cold. God wants us to have present joy. 
present happiness in him, present love in him. If that's you, just feels cold and dry, just, I encourage you to pray. Ask the Lord to revive your heart. It is a work of the Spirit. Turn to him. Cry out to him. Ask him to do that, and he will answer that prayer for you. So, forgetting what lies behind and then straining forward to what lies ahead. This, this picture of straining ahead is the image of a runner, just leaning in, right? Hard. The, the momentum is forward, pressing outstretched arms, outstretched body, eyes fixed on a target, the finish line, not looking over your shoulder, not looking back, pursuing him. We are always pursuing something. The question isn't, are we pursuing? It's, what are we pursuing? We're always, the heart is never not straining towards something. That is the truth of our heart. The scriptures teach us that there is always a treasure, and the, the, the thing that we treasure is where our heart is, and the thing where our heart is is where our behavior, what we do. And those things aren't necessarily bad. Life is made up of pursuits, right? If we're pursuing an educational degree, we're pursuing a promotion, we're pursuing bigger muscles, maybe. Pursuing ranking on a video game, maybe a girl or a boy, you're pursuing their love or attention. So pursuits are real. But Paul, Paul is helping us be reminded that there needs to be a pursuit that dictates all of the other pursuits. It supersedes and is foundational to all other pursuits in our life. What is this one thing? Straining forward to what lies ahead. What is the ahead? Verse 14, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is, this is Paul's straining. This is Paul's running. This word strain actually is the same word that Paul used earlier in chapter 3, for the, for the zeal that in verse 6, that the, the he persecuted the church, that he hated Christ with. How, how amazing this transformation that has happened, this misplaced, misdirected, anti-Jesus zeal and pursuit and straining is now turned into a zealous, loving, and following Jesus. That's what the gospel does. It, it takes those zeals and strains that we have misplaced to other things and it turns it towards Jesus himself. It's, it's like that sci-fi movie, right, where the ship is getting toasted by the enemy and, you know, the captain's like, redirect all the energy from the weapons and the shields to the engines to get to his death. We've got to get out of here. And it's, it's Paul saying all those energies have been redirected to this one thing, and that is the upward call this prize of the upward call of Jesus Christ running. And this end, this goal is relational. It's not just something. It's not a, it's not a perishable wreath of leaves on his head. It is, it is a gaining of God himself. The call into, the, into fellowship with Jesus will come to completion in his Savior when he experiences the presence and the reality of Jesus himself. Gordon Fee, commentator, writes this, thus Christ is both means and the end of God's call. And knowing him finally and fully is the prize toward which Paul stretches every nerve. 
There is no other prize, hence nothing else counts for much except knowing Christ, both now and with clear and certain hope of the future. Jesus is the means. Jesus is the end to have fully gained Christ, to to know Jesus, to experience Jesus, to be in his kingdom, in his presence, knowing his resurrection and his power forever in this heavenly realm with Jesus with no more sin, no more tears, no more pain, no more brokenness, no more suffering, but Christ. The knowing of Christ, and he wants it, and he wants to be fully experiencing that and this is something that we can't even comprehend. Even Paul is there with, with just the prize, this reality that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart will conceive what God has prepared for those who love him, as he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. This is what we press on towards. This is what we press on towards. This is what we strive for. Jesus, a pressing on to find him and to know him. This pressing on, we need help to do this. We need God's grace to do this. We need his spirit to work in our hearts to do this. What are some things that we could note? A couple things I want to draw our attention to in this pressing on, necessary for our racing. Well, one, pressing on will require ongoing humility. This has been a, a theme through Philippians. Note Paul's humility in this. He says, I have not arrived. I have not obtained this yet. But he has recounted his previous life. I mean, he had some serious achievements that he could account for as something. But he says he's accounted for nothing. He's in prison now, suffering for the gospel. He's maybe at the very end of his life, execution possibly awaiting him. He's a church planter, pastor of pastors, elder of elders. He's been caught up into the heavenly visions. All this apostolic authority, one of the greatest theological minds in history. And what does he say? I have not arrived, saints. I have not attained the goal. I'm not perfect, but I'm pressing on. I'm growing like you. I'm growing with you. A teacher and author that has made a big impact on me in my gospel formation of my life is, is Jerry Bridges. I would recommend any of his books to you. He, he helped me, helped teach me this idea of preaching the gospel to myself every day. I need the gospel. I've heard him teach numerous times. And one occasion, he was at a Desiring God conference many, many years ago. Jerry Bridges is now with Jesus in heaven. And uh, it's kind of a big deal to speak at that, that conference. And, but if you've seen Jerry, just like this humble, like not assuming presence. And the theme of that conference that year was endurance of the saints. There's this big welcome. Jerry Bridges is sort of introed and him being this example of somebody who would endure. And not too short into his introduction, he, said, he sort of deflates all that. Says the issue is, will you finish the race? Stand firm. Will you endure? This is a sobering thought, even for me at the age of 77. I worked for the Navigators for 52 years, and at my age, it's sobering. As the great American philosopher and baseball player Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> he says, I cannot even presume 
that even at my age that I will finish well. We never finish until the day we die. What I say to you, I say to myself. And he goes on to teach a wonderful message about enduring and just the means of grace, like having a good Bible time, keeping your heart before the gospel, being humble, needing others. Jerry Bridges was fully aware of and confident in the saving work of grace, that he would be saved by grace only, and the power of God's grace to help those who are saved to persevere and endure. But humble enough at 77 to not presume to finish well. He knew he had to keep his heart before Christ. He had to keep pressing on at 77 after authoring many, many, many books and preaching and teaching. He knew he needed the gospel today to finish well. And like Paul, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith, but also said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he kept clinging and he keeps saying like he does to the Philippians, I haven't done it yet. I'm going to keep pressing on. I'm going to keep looking to Jesus. I'm going to keep running. I'm going to keep abiding in the assurance of God's salvation, but know that I need God's grace today to continue to follow him. So we press on in humility. We press on knowing that none of us have arrived and we need to keep looking to Jesus. And he also knows that in that place of humility, he's not doing it alone, but doing it together. Again, an echo through Philippians. Side by side in the gospel. Not considering yourself more important than others, but moving towards others and serving in humility. Side by side, running together. This is, this is another point. Pressing on in partnership, in community, in fellowship. See, Paul's about to in the next verses that we're going to look at exhort them to keep their eyes on those who have been faithful we're going to look at that more next week and he's already listed guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus and he is offering himself as an example and ultimately pointing them to Jesus Jesus is our ultimate example but Paul calls them look at verse 16 he says that or 15 those um I just want to be sure I got the right verse verse 15 those who are mature Think this way, he says. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Paul calls up those who are mature to think this way. What is the this way? What he just laid out, this forgetting and this pressing forward. Not already perfect, not sinless, but a call to maturity. Paul would write to the Corinthian church, a church full of immaturity, fighting over those who were, they were fighting over who was more spiritual. I have a special gift, and, and I, you don't, and I can speak in tongues, and you don't, and I'm more spiritual. And he rebukes them, and he, he wants to remind them that those who get the gospel, those who trust in Christ, the foolishness of the cross, and they follow that, and they're conformed to his life and his character, these are those who are mature. And this takes discernment and wisdom to shape us in our maturity. He says in 1 Corinthians 14, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And he, he says, at one point I thought like a child, I acted like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Point being, spiritual maturity is a call for God's people. 
and the calling up into maturity happens, the thinking this way is not grasped on our own. It's spoken to us and it's encouraged by one another as we're together in fellowship. Press on. Don't forget, Paul loved his people. He knew this church and he was able to inform them and call them up because he loved them and he knew them. And so we also likewise are in community knowing that we have people that love us and care for us and know the gospel who can call us up to maturity in ways that we need to be. Granted, we are not ultimate agents to help people mature. We can't do that. That's why Paul says God will reveal this to you. It is God who grows us by the Spirit. But we know that we need others around us, saints, to be running side by side with us, along with us, to help us press forward, help us to look to Christ, to help us see us when we're, when we're looking over our shoulder and we're forgetting we're not forgetting, but we're looking back to the things that are distractions and hindrances for us. Around middle school, middle, no, middle, middle of high school, probably, the movie Forrest Gump came out. I was running. <laughs> was the epic line that I probably said like one million times. And if you don't remember the movie, if you didn't see the movie, the, the movie, this is the story unfolding of this one man named Forrest Gump. He was a country boy from Alabama, and he found out that he could run very fast. His running led him through college and football. It saved him in Vietnam. And at one moment later in his life, he said, for no particular reason, I decided to go for a little run. And he just started running. He ran out of the town where he's living. He just kept on running through Greenbow County. And he says, and I figured since I ran this far, I ran across Alabama for no particular reason. I just kept on going. I ran clear to the ocean. And when I got there, I figured since I'd gone this far, I might as well turn around and just keep running and go back. And when I got to the other ocean, I figured since I'd gone this far, I might as well just turn back and keep right on going. So after two years of doing this, the news stories picked up on this, and one scene that news anchors are surrounding him, and they're saying, why are you running? Are you doing this for world peace, for the homeless? Are you running for women's rights, the environment? And he just says they couldn't believe somebody would do all that running for no reason. Now, Forrest had a pretty epic story, if you've seen the movie. But here, ran, he just ran to run. No reason. As I was preparing this week, I, just, I thought of Forrest just running for no reason, and I, I just became aware even from my, the temptations of my own life, where we, we can just fall into this trap, back, forth, back, forth, another Sunday, home, another Sunday, home, just slump, just moving one leg in front of another, and just, well, why, why am I doing this? No reason? Do you, do you maybe feel that way? today. Have you, I'm sure you felt that way at some point. And I'm grateful for a text like this. I'm grateful for Paul coming to us, God coming to us, speaking to our hearts to remind us, to fill our hearts and, and, and give us availability by the Spirit to be awakened like Paul, to know that we have a radical, divine purpose to press on. All of this has great meaning and purpose. It has a glorious end. Eternity is at stake is why we're running. Our future hope and joy, eternal joy in God is at stake. And there is great purpose 
Even at times, it feels like it just back and forth, back and forth. I'm going to open my Bible again today, and I'm going to, I'm going to look to the Scriptures. We heard this morning in Romans 5, the, the endurance of the Scriptures, the, the endurance we need by looking to the Scriptures, the endurance we need by gathering around others who are going to encourage us to, to keep going, to keep moving ahead, to keep looking to Jesus, the, the finish line, our prize, to keep holding true to the gospel that we have obtained. Verse 16, we keep forgetting. We keep looking ahead. We, we stop looking over our shoulders and distractions, and we strain towards knowing Jesus, becoming like Jesus, suffering well for Jesus. All with confidence that, like Paul, we have been apprehended by our Savior. You and I, if you're trusting in Christ, you've been apprehended by him for this goal, for this end. It's not ultimately up to us, but to us looking to Jesus, ongoing today and tomorrow for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So let's keep following Jesus. Saints, let's Let's keep forgetting what lies behind. That, that forgetting is today. We've got to forget again tomorrow. And we've got to strive ahead today. And we strive ahead tomorrow. And we keep doing that. We keep doing that. Encouraging each other to keep on going. We invite others into this beautiful, glorious race as well. As we love those who are lost. And we, and we have this confidence that Paul would say a little bit later in chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the finish line. This is what we're waiting. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. And who's going to do it? <laughs> He's going to do it. He's going to fully do it for us by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. We're kept in this grace, saints. We keep running in this grace, and we await this glorious end, this prize to know him, to be with him forever. Let me pray. Lord, there is a prize for us, a reward, a heavenly citizenship that we are awaiting. We have not yet obtained that, we taste of it here, Lord, in part. We, we experience the joy and the good of the gospel, but then we know there is a glorious, magnificent, unimaginable end that is with you, that is in you. And all the beauty that comes with that experience. Lord, I, I thank you for the privilege to, to run this race with my friends here at Cross of Grace. Lord, each of us play a role to encourage one another as we race together side by side in the gospel, looking, looking ahead, striving ahead. But would you, would you give us joy in that striving? That striving, sometimes we can hear that word and it just seems like empty, laborious pain. And Lord, there, you, you want joy for us. It's why you started this chapter thing with rejoicing in the Lord, because we can, we can run with joy. So would you bring joy in our running, those who are struggling and straining ahead in, in sorrow? Would you bring your joy and comfort? 
Lord, if we're here this morning and there's a, a sense of, of, of just apathy, just maybe, maybe just the sidelining, just sitting down, um, maybe leaning on the laurels of the past and experiences of the past, would you, would you awaken fresh love, fresh joy, joy of salvation? Yeah. Help us to look back rightly at the things that would stir fresh faith stir fresh hope. So awaken fresh zeal today for us to run. We know this comes by the work of your spirit. Amen.